Welcome to this evening's Bible study, last Wednesday in December 2023. Hard to believe it, isn't it? I mean, another year, uh, moving into the, the new one, uh, leap year, by the way, in case you weren't aware of that, 2024. But uh, we're thankful to God for the opportunity to gather together and look into the Word of God. And we'll finish up uh, this year with a finish of our study in the book of Jude. So if you'd like to turn there, please, with me. Book of Jude. We'll be looking at the last 12 verses or so, verses 14 through 25. And our study this evening will be on the contrasting endings of the ungodly versus the godly. The contrasting endings of the ungodly versus the godly. It's easy to say that word and even think about it, but as I was preparing, and even just a few moments ago considering, it's not a pleasant thought, really. It shouldn't be a pleasant thought that there are multitudes of ungodly people that, whose destiny is hell. That, that shouldn't be a pleasant thought. Some of those people might even be people we know, perhaps are even dear to us. But there's a multitude of people who are headed for an eternal hell. Just as we can rejoice that we are headed for an eternal heaven and the bliss that belongs to it and the comfort that brings to us, yet we should have a sober mind to think that others are not going to make it. And we should not, you know, we, we can certainly name off terrorists and others saying, oh, they deserve it. Well, they deserve it no less than we deserve it. It's only by the grace of God that they're the terrorists going to hell and we're the Christians going to heaven. That's, that's the way it is. You know, we like, don't like to think of it because we think of, well, they're over in those foreign lands and they're, you know, controlled by radical, you know, clerks or clerics or something. But they're only there by the grace of God. They could be here and we could be there. You know, we have to keep that in perspective. We should never think lightly of the consequences of rejecting God. And yet that's what the scripture tells us. In fact, in this text, in, in Jude here, he very clearly and very forcefully declares the judgment upon the wicked. And so that's something we should find, uh, I guess, a sense of peace and agreement with, that it is God's will, but we should not take comfort in the fact that people are being cast in hell for their sins because we could be there if it weren't for the grace of God. So last week, um, <clears throat> we noted that Jude is one of the last eight, uh, eight New Testament books that we call general epistles. They're not directed to any specific group of people. Although, from what we could tell from the context, and that's always important, reading the context and what's said, it's probably written to Jewish converts to Christianity that were part of what we call the diaspora, which is the Jews that were scattered abroad throughout the Middle East um, during the time of, of Christ. But we need to take this text here, and as I said, considering all the warnings that Jews giving and, uh, and the, the threats of God's judgment, we need to value its warnings and its admonitions as coming from God the Holy Spirit to us, his people. It's, it's the Holy Spirit had this recorded to warn us just as much as he had Jude recorded to warn those people that lived during his time. So it's speaking to us and we need to take it as a warning that God is saying this is not a light subject here. We need to warn people who are living an ungodly life that they are facing the judgment that Jude describes. Um, Jude may have been the half-brother of Christ, but the value of this word is not based upon that relationship. Okay, we need to keep that straight. It doesn't matter who he was. He could have been Christ's half-brother. But like all New Testament writers, his words have value because why? Because they're inspired by, the, by God the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Just this text is part of scripture. So we take it from that perspective 
It's valuable. It's God's word. Last time we noted that Jude likes to use, uh, express his thoughts and admonitions in threes. It was kind of unique that he did that. We see this quite clearly in the first two verses where he gives his greeting, as well as more subtly in verses 4 through 8. In verses 5 through 7, and also in verse 11, he uses three Old Testament examples each time to prove his point. And as we saw in our focus on verse 1, Jude describes his readers and all believers as three things. He describes them as called, or you could use the term elect, beloved by God, the Father, and kept by Jesus Christ. So we're called, beloved, and kept. Those are three promises there that we can rejoice in, that we are called of God, not of anyone else or of ourselves. We're beloved by God and we're kept by Jesus Christ. No one can take us out of his hand. Our salvation is all of God and its fulfillment is sure and secure. No one can pluck us out of Christ's hand or the Father's hand. He has included nothing in his plan that is dependent upon someone or something else. By his sovereign power and purpose alone, we are his. Anyone that is his, we are his because he has determined it to be so. And that's where all the glory goes to him, right? Because there's nothing in that we can say, well, I, I did my part and God did his part. No, he did all the parts. He, certainly, we, we have to repent of our sin and believe in Christ alone for our salvation. But we can't even do that or would not even do that unless the Holy Spirit quickened us and drew us to the Lord. So to him be all the glory, right? That's what we need to keep that in mind. We're certainly beholden to God for every aspect of our salvation. And that's important. <clears throat> Jude tells us in verse 3, he was going to write this epistle uh, uh, to his readers about their common salvation. He was going to preach on kind of the unity of the faith and, and being together in Christ and the oneness that comes from that. However, due to the increase in false teachers and ungodly men spreading false doctrine, he felt it best to instead to challenge them to contend, okay, to battle hard, to contend or struggle mightily to uphold the truth. Uh, the faith or the body of doctrine that he had been given, had been given to them by the apostles. So <clears throat> even at that time, and this is kind of, we, I think I might have mentioned this, interesting. Here's Jude, along with the other apostles who may or may not have been still alive, maybe within 20, 30 years after the death of Christ, and they're having to deal with error, abundance of error. You think, wow, you, wouldn't it be kind of clear at that point in time, Christ laid down the foundation, the apostles Gave, gave the truth and, and laid out the doctrine, you think by you know, 20 years afterward, things would be going really good. But here we are with a book that tells very clearly there was trouble in River City. There was a lot of problems. There was a lot of error being spread around in spite of the fact that here we are just within you know, a couple decades of Christ's uh, resurrection, they're still fighting a lot of problems with errors. And that's a lot of the New Testament books uh, allude to that, of course. So <clears throat> it's important that we see these errors that are there are not something that only happened back there in, you know, 2,000 years ago. No, they're happening now in our time period. They're happening to us. Errors abound on every side, and when the culture around us makes light of sin, the church, instead of being most bold against rampant immorality, in some cases not only tolerates it, but accepts it. Okay, that's a sad thing in our age. We would think by now we'd have things pretty straight, but no, it seems like we're, we're opening ourselves more and more to the lies of Satan. The antinomian spirit that pervades in our land and has infected the church is pretty bad. And if we would see a return to any semblance of the principles upon which this nation was founded, we must contend or boldly declare, as the prophets of old did, thus saith the Lord. That's our job, right? We're, gonna, we're supposed to get clear 
and contend for the faith, as Jude's exhorting us here, contend for the faith, and tell the people, thus saith the Lord. <clears throat> and Jude, as we mentioned, gives us these three examples of God's judgment on the wicked in the Old Testament. Peter did the same thing. If you were to go back and read Second Peter, you get the same points. In fact, their point is that these ungodly men who have infiltrated the churches are under the wrath of God. They're not going to get away with it, in other words. And therefore, we should not associate with them nor tolerate them in our churches. They are antithetical to all that we as God's people should be pursuing. We need, and we need to be aware of that and be on guard, obviously, and not just let people come in and pollute the church and drag us away into false, false beliefs. They are ungodly. We are to be holy. They are rebellious against authority, and we are to submit to authority. They preach lies and deceptions, and we are to hold and walk in the truth of God's word. They are dry. They are, uh, Jude describes them as dry, fruitless, and dead spiritually, and their future is the blackness of darkness forever. We, on the other hand, are to be the fountains of living water, we're told in John 7:38. We're to be fruit, fruitful. We're told in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 10, and we are alive in Christ, Romans 6, 11. That's contrary to what they are. Our future is not darkness, but the light of God's promise. So as we conclude our study of Jude, we will find that he prophesies the doom of these ungodly men and both exhorts and comforts us with the hope that is ours in Christ. <clears throat> Excuse me. So let's look at the first portion here, uh, first few verses of this second half of the chapter, starting in verse 14. And we'll deal with what, he called, what we'll call the prophesied judgment on the ungodly. This is Judas prophesying a judgment to happen on them. By this time, it should be pretty clear that God's promised judgment on the wicked is not just idle words. It's not an idle threat. God doesn't make idle threats, but it's a sure thing. However, Jude here uses one more reference to assure his readers that these heretics that are troubling them will not escape God's judgment. So let's look at verses 14 through 16. <clears throat> now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also saying, <clears throat> Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his saints to execute judgment on all, convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way, and all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against them. Though Jude quotes here from a non-biblical uh, book, he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to do so, just as Paul did in Acts chapter 7 and verse 28, when he referred to a philosopher. And therefore, it is, is accurate. It's okay. Actually, the book of Enoch, first Enoch, by the way, was very well known and greatly respected volume of religious writings in the two centuries before and after the birth of Christ. That's per Simon Kistemacher in his commentary. So it was, it was a well-known book. It wasn't some, you know, floozy of a thing or just a, 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 a work of fiction that nobody knew about. <coughs> it was actually a very well-known book. So <clears throat> Jude was not treating it as scripture, though. But he no doubt had some confidence in its accuracy, and at least as far as it was a true document. It wasn't something somebody had made up. Enough, of course, was a unique individual, wasn't he? He was very unique. We're told in Genesis chapter 5, and verse 24, that he walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Obviously, the words of such a man would carry some weight with both Jews and anyone else who had heard of him. And though he lived before the flood, he apparently foresaw the coming of Christ in judgment at the end time. <clears throat> in fact, his words 
parallel that of our Lord's in Matthew chapter 16, verse 27, when Jesus said, For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. In fact, I think there's a, another text in Matthew. It's Matthew 25, verse 31. Let me read that to you. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he shall sit on the throne of his glory. And also Daniel chapter 7 and verses 9 through 10 is that picture there where the Ancient of Days is seated and this, uh, he's watching in this, uh, the writer is watching and in the, in the, sees the Ancient of Days sitting down. His, his robe was white, his hair was white, and there's this picture of thousands serving him. It's a picture of God in judgment. So the Old Testament and the New Testament speak of God's judgment of Christ's coming in wrath upon those who refuse to obey. And notice in this text we just read, those few verses, four times he uses the word ungodly. So he's not saying these guys are just kind of, oh, they're not too bad, they're, they're bad, but they're not too bad. No, four times he describes them in verse 15 as ungodly. The idea is to call attention to the depth of their sin and the seriousness of their condition before a holy God. These men deliberately mock or taunt God, they rebel against him, and they reject his law. Woe unto them, and, and we need to be careful we do not associate them, with them or tolerate them in our church or any church that is truly the church of God. Note the phrase, all the hard speeches which the ungodly sinners have spoken against them. <clears throat> it reminds me of Jesus' words in Matthew 12 and verse 36 where he says, But I say unto you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give an account in the day of judgment. Beware, warning here, beloved, beware of idle words. Beware of how you use your tongue. Beware of what you say. Um, God holds us accountable for what we're saying. Even if they're indirectly uh, words that we speak that are kind of careless, if they are against God and his holy will, God will hold us accountable. The third commandment is still applicable today as it has been throughout history. God will not excuse those who take his name in vain, who mock him, and we need to be careful, especially as God's people, to honor him with our tongue and be careful lest in foolishness we dishonor him by our words. <clears throat> and James chapter 5 speaks very clearly about that, about the use of the tongue and how it can be used for good, but also it can be used as a fire, a world of iniquity, he says. And so the tongue is set among our members, spotting, uh, spotting all the body and inflaming the course of nature and being inflamed by hell. So we need to be careful that our tongue is not being used to bring a reproach upon God or to spread the lies, but rather to speak the truth in love. That's a warning from James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. <clears throat> so Jude goes on to describe here those ungodly men who pervert the grace of God as ones who use their mouths for evil and live in lustful pursuits. They're murmurers, they're complainers. Unless we think that's not a great sin to be a murmurer or a complainer, because we kind of can do that, uh, can't we? We murmur about the weather, we murmur about taxes, we murmur about things going on in our life, need to be careful because God's sovereign over all things. There's nothing that happens that he is not in control of, and we need to be careful that we don't begin to complain and act as though God doesn't know what he's doing. Remind us ourselves, we need to remind ourselves how God views them, in fact, views these people. In fact, in Numbers chapter 16, <coughs> excuse me, we have a very, <coughs> excuse me, a very strong account of Korah uh, against, who spoke up against Moses and Aaron, you might recall. 
uh, I think Jude refers to it in verse 11 back in our text, he refers to Korah. In that chapter, not only did Korah, his fellow rebels and grumblers against Moses and Aaron, and all their families perished, but later 14,700 people were struck down by a plague sent by God because they complained about God's judgment on Korah. That's pretty serious. Obviously, God takes our words seriously. He takes especially our words seriously if those words end up mocking him or calling reproach upon his name. 14,700 people died because they complained about what God did to Korah. That's all they did. They complained about God doing judgment upon Korah, and God judged them. So we need to be careful and realize that God holds us accountable for our foolish words and how we speak them. <clears throat> Excuse me. Paul refers to it in 1 Corinthians 10.10 when he warns believers not to complain as those Jews did and were destroyed by God's wrath. Paul refers to that event in 1 Corinthians 10.10. And he goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 10.11, now all these things happened to them as what? As examples. And they were written for, here's the key words, they're written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. What God did in the Old Testament the judgments he brought upon the Jews for their refusing to obey was an example to us and they were to, they're, they're for us to, our admonition to us upon whom the ends of the ages have come. We're to take them to heart. We're to, we're to take them in a sense of this is serious. We need to be careful. These men whom Jude is describing here show their dissatisfaction with God's will <clears throat> for them and find fault with his will in general. They're driven by their own selfish desires, they're boastful, though they have nothing to boast about, really, and they flatter others to gain an advantage. And as God's people, we are to be content, Philippians 4.11, Paul says, we're to be content in whatever thing we do. We're to be selfless, we're to be humble, 1 Peter 5.6, and no respecter of persons, even as our Heavenly Father is no respecter of persons, which we're told in Romans chapter 2 and verse 11. There's no respect of persons with God. <clears throat> Excuse me. So that was Philippians 4.11, 1 Peter 5.6, and Romans 2.11. Well, let's move on a little bit into our next few verses. <clears throat> and we need to, um, Jude reminds us here to be remember, okay? These things that he's describing, these things he's looking back and telling these Jews, who should remember these events from the Old Testament, by the way. He's saying, remember and be on guard, be on guard. He's transitioning, in a, in a sense, in these next few verses, verses 17 through 19. He's transitioning from describing the heretics to exhorting the Christians. And therefore, he gives us one last admonition to his readers regarding these ungodly men who are troubling them. So let's read verses 17 through 19 to see how he goes about that. <clears throat> 17. But you, beloved, and notice those first two words. That's a key context you need to look at. But you, beloved, after what he's just told you, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. There's that word ungodly again. These are sensual persons who cause divisions not having the spirit. Here, with pastoral love, he reminds his readers of what they had been taught by Peter and the other apostles. Again, this is, gives us a hint that this book was probably written after Peter's, first and second Peter's, and also after the other apostolic uh, works in the New Testament. 
He's saying, remember what Peter and the apostles told you. Remember what they warned you against, that these things are going to come. Uh, these sounds very much like, <clears throat> excuse me, Peter's own words in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, when Peter says that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lusts. So as you can see, Jude's words here are almost a direct quote from that passage in 2 Peter. <clears throat> in other words, is Peter, is, Jude's saying here, his readers really shouldn't be surprised that these ungodly mockers are appearing. Peter, in a sense, warned about them coming down the road. Jude's saying they're here. Okay, this is in a, a response to, he's saying, this is a fulfillment of what, what the apostles warned us of. They're here. Uh, they shouldn't be surprised. Darkness hates the light because its deeds are evil. John chapter 3 and verse 20. <clears throat> and Satan, the prince of darkness, will do whatever he can do to disturb, if not destroy, the church, the body of Christ. In John chapter 17 and verse 14, Jesus tells us that he has given us the Father's word and the world has hated us because we are not of the world just as he is not of the world. We should not be surprised. He's given us his Father's word and the world hates that word. And he said, you shouldn't be surprised. They hated me, they're going to hate you as well. Those who hate God and his truth mock the promises of God and his church. And so we shouldn't be shocked by that. That's what we're told was going to happen. And this is 2,000 years ago. Jews saying this is happening now. It's going to continue to happen. Again, the term last times here that is used by Jude and others doesn't necessarily mean that Jude was talking about a future time. But really, all of the apostles and the disciples thought that they were in the last times. Okay? They thought they were in the last days. And as we stated before, I think it's been spoken here many times, the last times began really when Christ fulfilled his ministry, rose from the dead, and ascended to the Father. The last times were upon us, and they have continued to be upon us. <clears throat> the key to identifying these ungodly mockers is that they are essentially self-oriented, desiring only to satisfy their own lust, and they rebel against any authority, especially Christ as Lord of their life. They're not going to stand for that. Simon Kistemacher said in his commentary, the attitude of the scoffers is diametrically opposed to that of the believer, who desires to do God's will and to express his gratitude to them. So we, excuse me, as God's people and followers of our Savior are to be humble, we're to take up our cross, we're to follow him seeking his glory and not our own. Mark chapter 10 and verse 21, excuse me, says this, then Jesus, beholding him, loved him and said to him, one thing you lack, go sell whatever you have and give it to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come, take up the cross and follow me. James 4.10, be humbled before the Lord and he will lift you up. We need to be humble. We need to be submissive to the Lord and we need to trust him and take up our cross. And that cross involves Standing up, obviously, against the ungodly and even suffering sometimes at the hand of the ungodly. But we stand for Christ. <clears throat> In verse 19, Jew says, these ungodly men cause divisions. Well, obviously, their goal is to create fractions within the church and to draw weak Christians after them. And they're deceptive heresies. In fact, isn't it interesting? These are tools of the devil. But we're happening here in our own country and throughout the world. That's the, basically the communist manifesto is to cause division, disorder, 
bitterness amongst different cultural and racial groups and therefore bring the society to chaos. And that's when they take over. That's happening in our world right now, right here in America. And it's a tool of Satan that's been used for 2,000 years to destroy, try and destroy the church. And he also uses it to destroy nations. Of course, after a few hundred years, or after maybe even less than 100 years, 50 years, suddenly people realize that communism isn't a great thing and they all throw it off. But still, that's how he works. And that's the tool of Satan. And the Communist Party is more than happy to use Satan's tools to try and accomplish their goals. <clears throat> so these ideas uh, were the foundation of a heretical movement at that time known as Gnosticism that flourished later in the second century. Jude kind of foresaw that happening. He could see it. This was the foundation of Gnosticism, even though it probably wasn't called that at that time. And Jude rebukes them for, instead of being truly spiritual-minded, they're acting like animals, he says, driven by instincts. In fact, they have not the spirit, he says, which means they have no spiritual life at all. There's not any spirit in them. They pretend to be. They come into the churches acting as though they are men of, of the spirit, but they're not. They're like, like animals that just operate by instinct. <clears throat> and, and in contrast, of course, we, as God's people, are to promote unity within the body of Christ. We're to live in the, in the sense of the Spirit. Turn with me over to Philippians chapter 2 and verses 1 through 4. Philippians 2, 1 through 4. Paul speaking here, of course. Philippians 2, 1 through 4. Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, and listen carefully to what Paul's saying here. This is what we, we should be doing. This is a, a description of the church as it should be. Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded. There's the contrast against divisiveness, which is Satan's tool. Having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Notice all the ones there. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you Look not only for his own interests, but also for the interest of others. <coughs> Excuse me. Also, you might want to see Romans 15, 5, uh, where it says, And may the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus. There's the key. The ungodly men are trying to get people to be opposite-minded, to have constant conflict. But we are to be like-minded. We're to be of one mind and one heart, of course, based upon the word of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and verse 10, Paul says, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, there be no divisions among you, and that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. So rather than being led by the flesh or by instincts, we, as God's people, are to be led by the Spirit of God. Romans 8, 14, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Okay? That's us. We are to be led by the Spirit of God. We're to be of one mind, one heart, one goal, and that is to glorify God. Not to be separated, divided, you know, cast about by all kinds of false doctrines. <clears throat> Excuse me. Okay, let's move on here towards the latter part of the, of the book, verses 20 through 25. And we'll look here, this is get a more positive sense after all this message on judgment. Uh, Jude uh, begins to speak about the life and the hope of the godly, the life and the hope of the godly here in verses 20 through 25. 
This is Jude's exhortation to believers in this latter part of the epistle. And for the second time, he contrasts the believer with the unbeliever and begins with these words, but you, beloved. Let's begin with verse 20. And again, I'd recommend as you read the scripture, always look for that. I think last time I mentioned the two most powerful words in the Bible are but God. But when it says, but you, beloved, obviously we need to wake up and say, oh, okay, I need to pay attention because he's speaking to me. Okay, verse 20, but you, beloved, building yourself up on your most holy faith, this is contrasted with the wicked, praying in the Holy Spirit, there's the importance of prayer, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And have some have on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by this flesh. Verse 24, now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior who alone is wise be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. Amen. <clears throat> so, after the lengthy description and rebuke of the ungodly, Jews' exhortation to the godly, the saints here, whom he's writing to, is pretty brief, but it's to the point. Okay, He gets right to the point. Note, he uses a series of four exhortations or commands to encourage them and us to develop what we would call a well-known Christian virtues. Those four virtues are faith, prayer, love, and hope. Let me say those again. Faith, prayer, love, and hope. This is in contrast to the wicked and what they're doing, okay? We also see the, in these two verses, verses 20 and 21, a reference to the Trinity. Notice, again, I think I mentioned this last time, always keep your eyes open to, to doctrines that you sometimes say, well, I don't see that in the Bible. Well, take a good look. Look at verses 20 and 21. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are mentioned there in those three verses, okay? In, in those two verses, 20 and 21 building yourself up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keeping yourself in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those are little gems that I think help encourage us when we say, well, I'm not sure about doctrines and something like that, you know, the Trinity, it's not really said specifically. Well, look at the text. It's right there. All three members of the Trinity are mentioned. That's what we need to look for to find encouragement. We're not just believing fables or somebody's idea. No, it's there in the scripture. That's what's the study of scripture and as Brance is going through in CLA and these different studies we're doing, the theological studies and historical studies, it's to get us in that focus of looking for the doctrines in there. Not just saying, well, yeah, we believe this doctrine, but look for them in Scripture. And when someone asks you, where is that in the Bible? Well, you can point them to this text and say, yeah, right here. Here's the Trinity. <clears throat> so that's important that we pay attention. So the first virtue is in direct contrast to the scheme of the ungodly. Why they seek to divide the body of Christ we are to build one another up spiritually and as a result, strengthen the unity of Christ's body. Our faith, okay, which is the first thing we're looking at, this first virtue, our faith is built on nothing less than what? Who can tell me the answer to that? Jesus' blood and righteousness, great hymn. Notice how the hymn writers just kind of pick scripture up and put it out there. Love that text. Okay, My, our faith is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Keep that thought in your mind, you know, and just kind of let that roll there. Let that, that verse from that hymn and from the text here. He is the foundation of our faith, and we are to be built up in him. Colossians 2, 7, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Great verse, Colossians 2, 7. 
We're rooted in him. We're built up in him. We're established in him. That's our faith. And we abound in it with thanksgiving. Note also is a most holy faith in contrast to the unholy character of the ungodly who seek to infiltrate the church. Build holy habits, beloved. That's the challenge. Build holy habits on the foundation of the Holy One, Christ Jesus our Lord. Secondly, our second virtue, Jude exhorts us to pray in the Holy Spirit. Pray in the Holy Spirit. We know from texts in Romans that it is the Holy Spirit who makes interceding with us for groanings that we can't even you know, understand. But pray in the Holy Spirit. So by this, he in one sense means to pray according to the Spirit's prompting. Okay, But he also means that we are to pray, as John MacArthur says, consistently in the will and the power of the Spirit as one would pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8 and verses 26 and 27 should be a familiar passage. Let me read it to you. Likewise, the Spirit also helps our infirmities, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings, which cannot be uttered, and he searches the hearts. He who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. The Holy Spirit never intercedes for us contrary to the will of God. Okay? Don't ask the Holy Spirit to intercede for you contrary to the will of God. You're going to get the door shut. Always think in that terms. You're praying according to God's will. The Holy Spirit will carry that message to the Father. Important to remember that. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, praying in the Spirit. Living a most holy faith. It reminds me of the armor of God passage in Ephesians 6, uh, where Paul exhorts us to what? Be praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. There it is praying with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. I, th- I think I've said it before, and I think others have too. Prayer is the lifeblood of the church and the instant messenger, taking a technological term, instant messenger between us and God, right? Instant messenger. We pray instantly. We have an answer from God. We don't have to write out petitions and have it submitted to a theological society. No, we pray instantly to God. It's an instant opportunity to interact with God. <clears throat> and it's very important. Paul was not just making idle statements in 1 Thessalonians 5.17 when he said, pray without ceasing. He, he was not just you know, making a, a kind of suggestion there. No, he was, he was exhorting his beloved to be much in prayer for our, our own spiritual growth, for wisdom to know God's will, and for the strength to fulfill it. Pray also for your loved ones, for our church, for us as elders, for the body of Christ in general over all the world. And if you still have time, pray for our nation and for those in authority over us. James chapter 5 and verse 14. Is any sick among you? Let him call on the elders for the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil and the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5.25. Brothers, pray for us. 1 Timothy 2.2. 2 for kings and for all who are in authority, so that they may lead, we may lead a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness and reverence. Prayer is important. That's what this meeting is going to be about in the future, really, on Wednesday nights. We will occasionally have perhaps a Bible study like this, but our goal is to continue to be a church who prays. Okay? That should be our goal 
fact, we hope to be able to bring in some material that were kind of be a brief devotions that would kind of exhort us in various ways, but not as long as, as a study like this. A devotion that is surrounded by prayer, that we can pray. Prayer has, has great power. We need to understand that. We don't need to look at it as just kind of a side issue. It is important in our lives. It's important in our church. It's important in the history of the church. The greatest revivals that ever came across this country were started by prayer. And we need to be willing to pray without ceasing, constantly lifting up each other and the glory of God in our prayers. So that's important. Prayer is a very important aspect of this. <clears throat> Thirdly, our third virtue here, we are exhorted to keep ourselves within the circle of God's love. Christians receive this love when they strive to do his will and love him with all their heart and their neighbors as themselves. Matthew chapter 22, I'm sorry, 22, 37 through 39, Jesus says this, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Familiar passage, right? That's the sum of the commandments. But it's there in Scripture. It's not just an Old Testament thing. No, Jesus said, this is what you should do. This is the sum of the commandments. 1 John 4 and verse, uh, I'm sorry, excuse me, John 15. Yeah, John 15, 9 and 10. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Continue in my love. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandment, and abide in his love. Wow, Jesus kept the commandments. He abided in the love of the Father in doing so. If we would know the Father's love, we need to abide in and keep his commandments, that we might know God's love towards us. And then 1 John 4, 16, And we have known and believed the love that God has in us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. Love is an important aspect of it. Christians receive this love from God, and we should spread that love abroad. We need to keep ourselves in God's love by keeping his commandments. And then we come to the fourth virtue, which is hope. Hope. We are to wait with anticipation, longing to see our Savior face to face, and to enjoy the reality of what we hold via his promise, which is everlasting life in the presence of the eternal Godhead. We have a hope that is sure. It's not made up. It's not an iffy kind of maybe sort of. No, it's a secure hope. In fact, turn with me to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12 and verses, oh, let's see, 35 through 40. Luke 12, 35 through 40. <clears throat> Luke 12, 35 through 40. This is speaking of, of the hope. Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning, and you yourself be like men who wait for their master, when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. And if he should come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed the house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready. For the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. And over in John chapter 14, and I believe it's verse 21, just over the next book, John 14, 21, He who has my commandments and keeps them is he who loves me, 
and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. That love is there to give us a comfort and encouragement and give us a promise that his hope is sure. We should be looking for him. We should be loving him, desiring to see him face to face. That's that fourth virtue, that virtue of hope that should bring us through the difficult times of life. Are you ready, beloved? Are you ready to seek, see the Lord face to face? We talk about it a lot, and we can kind of dream about it, but really, look at your own heart. Are you ready? If Christ were to come today, right now, would you be ready? Would you be ashamed? Would you be kind of doubtful? Are you secure in that hope? Are you sure that you are his? And if you are, then you should be happy. Or are you too enamored with this life to want to leave it? you kind of like to hang around for a while? Would you be disappointed if God came tomorrow and called you home? Or would you be exultingly happy? We should be happy. Paul so eloquently describes what should be the heart cry of every believer in Philippians 3.12 when he says, Not that I've already attained or I'm already perfected, but I press on that I may take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. I want to take hold of that hope and and, and go with it and be strong in it. He goes on saying in that chapter that he presses on toward the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's what he wants. He wants to be called to God. He wants to, to know that voice saying, come up, beloved. Do we long for that call? Pray that God will draw us ever closer and give us, like Paul, a passionate desire to see our Savior face to face. Now Jude goes on to urge com compassion, not only on those who have begun to doubt their faith here, but to those who have been led by these ungodly apostates to fall back into sinful passions. <clears throat> Jude borrows a, an example here, an image from the Old Testament. In both Amos chapter 4 and verse 11, and in Zechariah chapter 3 and verse 2, the word speaks of Israel, and in the second case, Joshua the priest, as being snatched as burning brands or sticks from the fire. That's where Jude gets this illustration here of being snatched out of the fire. These weak ones are about to apostatize, and we are to, in a sense, pull them up, like pull them out of the fire by pointing them back to Christ. Now, does this mean that someone can lose their salvation? No, that's secure. We know it's impossible for Christ told us that no one can snatch us out of his or his father's hand in John chapter 10. In verses 28 and 29. The idea here is that these doubters may not be true believers at all, or in any case, we don't want them to be deceived and turned away from the gospel by the allurements of false teachers. We don't want them to get confused and to say, well, I guess it doesn't matter what I believe. No, we want them, we want, in fact, Jude here warns his readers to be careful lest they too become tempted, and therefore he urges them to even hate the garments or things that associate with certain sins. That's what he's saying here. Hate those garments. Hate those things that are associated with different false worship. <clears throat> Finally, in verses 24 and 25, we come to this glorious doxology. I love doxologies like this that point us to God. And Jude has given us a, a wonderful one here. If you took a quick summary, you'd note that he began his epistle with a note of God's love and protection of his people, and he closes it with thanksgiving for God's persevering grace. Let's read that doxology again, verses 24 and 25. <clears throat> now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, 
be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. As one commentator said, this doxology may have been sung in the early Christian church. If you look at it really carefully in the Greek, there's a literary balance here and the cadence so that it could lend itself to singing it. I'm not going to attempt to do that right now because I don't know the Greek right offhand. But anyway, it's a song. It could be a song. It was sung in the early church. Jude encourages his readers here to trust in God who is able to keep you from stumbling. This reminds us of Paul's words to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.12 where he says, For I know whom I have believed. And here's another song. I know who I have believed and persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him until that day. Romans chapter 8, I think it is, and verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He will keep us. He will keep us until that day. In Romans chapter 14, verse 4. Who are you that judges another servant? To his own master he stands or falls, but he will stand for God is able to make him stand. God is able to make us stand. No matter what Satan's trying to do to us, no matter what false teachers are attacking us, if we're leaning on God, if we're trusting in God, he will enable us to stand. <clears throat> Excuse me. God is active in saving us, beloved, sanctifying us and keeping us, as we read earlier in our text. If we weren't, we'd be in big trouble. If we're not depending upon God to keep us, we're in big trouble. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you can stand if you trust in him. That's from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. No temptation has taken you, but it is what is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted above what you are able, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. So more than this, though, is the glorious statement in verse 24 that he will present us what? Pretty good? Almost there? No, faultless before the presence of his glory. Can you imagine that right now? I mean, if you know your own faults on a daily basis, the things you do that are contrary to what is right, think about that. One day you will have no inclination, no desire, no ability to find fault with anything. You will be totally, wholly captured by the love of God in eternity and living a perfect life with no fault. All your sins have been covered by the blood of Christ, but even there you'll be more realizing that because you'll be totally faultless. You'll make no mistakes, no more sin in heaven. What a wonderful place. What a glorious place. In Christ we are blameless. We are as holy as we can be in Christ. There's an amazing thought. Ephesians 5.27 that he might present it to himself, speaking of the church, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish, Ephesians 5.27. That's us. That's the church. We, one day, shall be perfectly holy, without blemish. What else could you want for? What else could you want but exceeding joy? For such a person as us would be, whom God has redeemed and made a spotless trophy of his grace. What else could you ask for? Psalm 21, verse 6, For you have, been, you have made him most blessed forever. You have made him exceedingly glad with your countenance. The psalmist is saying, God has made us, his people, exceedingly glad with his countenance. <clears throat> Excuse me. Psalm 30, 43, in verse 4 says, then I will go to the altar of God, to my God, my exceeding joy. Yea, on the harp I will praise you, O God, my God. 
We will spend the rest of eternity praising and singing praises to God. 2 Corinthians 4.17, For the lightness of our present affliction works out for us a far more excellent, exceeding, eternal weight of glory. 2 Corinthians 4.17. Now, no wonder Jude concludes with the most appropriate praise of such a God. Paul has very similar words, or unbounded emotion and praise, in Romans 11.33, when he says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Oh, what a Savior. What a God we have. Surely he deserves our endless praise. Let me conclude. Join with me in turning over to 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verses 10 through 13, one of the classic peons of praise in Scripture. And I would recommend you look for these as you read through the Scriptures because they're great encouragements. They help, again, take your mind off the stress, the problems, the difficulties the weaknesses of our flesh, and they focus your attention upon God. First Chronicles chapter 29 and verses 10 through 13. This is David praising God. First Chronicles 29:10. Therefore David blessed the Lord before all the assembly, and David said, Blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory, the victory and the majesty, for all that is in heaven and in earth are yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you reign over all. In your hand is power and might. In your hand it is to make great and to give great strength to all. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. And I recommend you read the rest of that chapter. But that is a, a wonderful way to conclude a study on the contrast between the ungodly and the godly. Our hope is in a glorious God who has promised to keep us for eternity and to bless us for eternity. And we certainly can rejoice in that tonight. Let's close in a word of prayer.